Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. And continue our worship now through studying God's Word. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, your devices, turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to do the entire chapter this morning of Matthew chapter 3. We're continuing this series called Fulfilled, just a short series, just looking at these fulfillment statements that Matthew makes early in his gospel. Remember, Matthew is a Jewish author writing a Jewish book to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. And the struggle they're having is believing that this is actually the Messiah. They've waited so long and they have expectations and he's making clear to them he is who he says that he is. So on the screen now will be some scriptures I'm gonna use this morning, just a a few of them. Uh, You can write those down, take a picture of them. I just want you to see I'm not making it up. It's all in here. And I hope what we're beginning to see is that the Bible overlaps and connects hyperlinks back to itself all the time. So we're gonna see more of that here uh, this morning. I don't know at what point for you, if you were a parent in raising your kids, or maybe you as a child, you recognized the point that hygiene needed to change for your child. Do you remember this moment? When you recognized the things that we had been doing for them are no longer working anymore. Uh, maybe for you, like it's for our boys, it's somewhere around like late elementary school or so, and they just get in the car after school, and you're like, did you have fajitas for lunch? Did you eat fajitas? <laughs> Because it smells just like peppers and onions in here. What did you have for lunch? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know that smell? But like dirty peppers and onions, not like good ones. But like there's that moment when you're like, oh man, something, something's not right here. Maybe in your house, maybe you mamas, you have this phrase and you say, it's, you smell like outside. How many of you, you say that? You smell like outside? I had never heard that until I got married to my wife. And I was like, I don't know what this means, but now I get it. Now I know, I know, I know. You've done great. You've trained me well. I know that we smell like outside when we come in. When you come in from outside, you can't touch the inside stuff (laughs) until you get the outside off of you and then you can be inside, right? There's there's moments when you're like, ah, that's too much, man. It's just too much here that's happening. All right, so let me just, um, I wanna tread lightly here. This will be a sensitive subject for a lot of us. How many of you take baths? Are you bath people? Not shower, but bath. How many of you are bath people? Okay. I think it's the most disgusting thing in the world to take a bath. (laughs) I want to tread lightly, uh, but I remember there was a moment, I never liked baths because I just, I think I, I just, I never liked just sitting still for that long, but um, I remember bathing our children, and there was a moment, I think with our middle son, where he was just filthy, and I'm bathing him, and so, you know, you get him wet, and then you put all the soap on, then you got to wash the soap off, and so I grab, you know, you have that stadium cup that you got from the Braves game that you use in the bathtub now, you guys have that cup? (laughs) We're on the same page. So you get the stadium cup full of um, water and the water's brown. And I'm like, I'm going to rinse you from your filth with this filthy water down. You, you, you know what I'm talking, that moment when you're like, what am I doing? What am I doing? I am washing you with dirty water right now. So I don't know how you feel about baths. Um, I think it's interesting that when most people take baths, they either shower before or after their bath, but just defeat, I don't understand why you do it. Why do you do it? It is the least efficient thing to do. Sure, it's watered down dirt. Like now it's like, it's like the Pepsi version of dirt now on you, but you're like, I don't know why. I don't, it doesn't feel right. I just think it's gross. Um, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, 
and that has a point. So I want you to bear with me here. Remember a few of those things as we study. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, Matthew skips a number of years of Jesus' life. And we just left off where they're running from Herod and they're running from his son and they're trying to preserve the life of this Jesus. Other gospel writers have all sorts of stories that happen here. Matthew does not because he's got a point to make. And so Matthew jumps to the next key moment for him in the life of Jesus, which is his baptism. He jumps here in Matthew chapter three. Uh, Today is called the day of Epiphany or Sunday of Epiphany for the liturgical church calendar. It's all based on this moment of the baptism of Jesus where God declares him as his son. There's an epiphany that happens when Jesus is declared as the son of God. So I wanna read through Matthew three. I wanna go back through, let's just study it hard together and see what we can squeeze out of it for us here today. Matthew chapter three, verse one. In those days, John the Baptist, John the baptizer, this is not a denominational thing here that's happening. He's not one of us. This is, he is a baptizer, John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, here's his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John, the baptizer, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then came Jesus from Galilee, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So in this series, for the next few weeks, we're studying the ways that Jesus fulfills some Old Testament prophecies and just the lineage of the people of Israel. So last week, we looked at this chart. I'm gonna show it to you again, just so you can get a frame of reference of what's happening here. Matthew is trying to make the point to his Jewish audience that Jesus is a better Israel. In all the ways that Israel messed it all up and failed to complete what God had called for them to do, Jesus steps in and finishes the deal. He fulfills all of it. He is a better Israel, the scholars would say. And so Israel, we studied it all last year in Exodus. Uh, They made a journey to Egypt. There was an oppressive king, Pharaoh, who was killing children. Jesus makes his journey to Egypt. We saw that last week through a number of crazy circumstantial circumstances where God leads them to Egypt. There's an oppressive king, Herod, who's killing children. 
Israel, God's firstborn son, according to Exodus chapter four, is led out of slavery in Egypt. In Matthew chapter three, God leads Jesus, his son, out of Egypt. This morning, we're looking at Israel made a passage through the water. There's two of them, one through the Red Sea. And the second one, they passed through this Jordan River on their way to the promised land. And this morning, we're studying Jesus being baptized in the water. Then the Israelites spend 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus, in Matthew 4, next week, would spend 40 days in the wilderness being tempted or tested uh, by the evil one. And so this is what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at this moment that Matthew thinks is so key uh, to the story of Jesus fulfilling what God had called him to do. So let's go back into Matthew chapter 3 together. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. And let's see in here what God has for us this morning. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So Matthew's gonna lay out a character study here for us of John the Baptizer. First thing we know is that he's preaching, he's proclaiming something, he's declaring something. We learn what that message is in the next verse. His message is repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or is at hand. So he's a preacher, he's a proclaimer and he comes from the wilderness. I don't know if you know people from the wilderness But if you know people from the wilderness, you never forget the people from the wilderness. You know what I'm saying? You know what they look like. You know what they smell like. Use your sanctified imagination. Picture John in this way. This is who he is. He's a man of the woods, Justin Timberlake. This is who he is. He's from the wilderness and he just, this is, he's proclaiming something in the wilderness. He smells like outside. This is who John the Baptist is. And here's his message in verse two. Repent, that word repent. It has some pretty heavy meaning. It means to change your mind so that you change direction. That's what repent means. We do it every Sunday. It means to change your mind, have a transformation in your mind. Repent is the word. So what the message is, John the Baptist is saying, listen, you need to change your mind about the kingdom, about who this Messiah is. Change your mind in such a way that it changes your behavior. One of the best ways to understand repentance is this. How many of you are chicken tender people? No matter what restaurant you go to, you want chicken tenders. You chicken tender people? Uh, you should grow up because there's more food than that out there. You chicken tender people, you like, are you honey mustard people or you ranch people? We're in the South, you're ranch people. I know who you are. And there's never enough ranch. Uh, but so chicken tender people, you go, let's just say you get invited to some, I mean, fancy steakhouse, like really good steak. And you're there and you know when you get there, your mind is made up. I'm a chicken tender person, I'm gonna order chicken tenders. And so you go in and you smell something cooking. You're like, what is that? What is this glory that has beset me? What is happening here? And then you come to find out, well, that's a sirloin being cooked. It's like a sirloin. Your problem is that anytime growing up you had steak, your daddy cooked it well done and you never liked it. And he called it Salisbury steak. You're like, that's steak? I don't want steak. No, that's just a ground beef patty. That's all that is. And so now you're like, oh, what is this smell? And something happens in your mind. You're like, oh, maybe I'm going to try that. Like, I don't know if I should try it. Should I try it? And then it's brought out to the table next to you. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to try that. And so someone tells you how to order it. And so you order it medium or medium well at the highest, probably just medium. And so you order it and it comes out and you cut into it. Like, this is the most glorious thing I've ever eaten in my life. This is so good. Well, what you've done is you've repented of your old way of living with the tenders. And you've changed your mind because of experience and now you're pursuing sirloin with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what I mean? Like that's what repentance is. And so John the Baptist, the message, the sermon he's giving is repent, change your mind about this Messiah and turn and face the one who is coming. Why, he says, because the kingdom of God is near or it's among us, it's at hand. 
What John is saying is, you know why the kingdom is here? Because the king is here. And wherever the king is, the kingdom comes with him. So now is the time of repentance. Verse three, for this is he, this is Matthew speaking of John the Baptist. This is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. When he said, the voice crying in the wilderness, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So then we learn something else about John in verse four. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. This is exactly what you would picture someone who smells like outside to be wearing, isn't it? And mamas, this is what you picture when your boys walk in. When they walk in from playing outside, are you wearing camel's hair? It stinks. You smell like outside. So he's wearing camel's hair, leather belt, and his food of choice was locust dipped in wild honey. So I want you again, just close your eyes, picture this man. I want you to use all your senses. I want you to picture what he looks like. I want you to picture what he smells like. I want you to picture your reaction when he walks by you on the street. This is John the baptizer. Matthew's trying to lay out an image for us. He's gonna contrast John the Baptist with another character coming up here in just a bit. This is John the Baptist. Then verse five, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. You gotta understand since Malachi, it's been 400 years and there have been no prophets speaking on behalf of God to his people. And the people of God were used to prophets. They declared the word of God. There's been silence. And so this wild man from the wilderness sounds just like the Old Testament prophets they're used to. His one sermon is repent, the kingdom of God is near. And that sounds a lot like Isaiah and like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So they're drawn to this prophet. And so they come from everywhere, from Jerusalem and Judea and on both sides of the Jordan, they come out to him. For what? According to verse six, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So they're confessing their sins. This word in the Greek means they're literally verbally confessing their sins. They're agreeing with the word of God. They're agreeing with one another. This is sin. They're confessing their sins. And what they're doing as an act of confession is they're being baptized by John in the Jordan River. So for us, particularly um, in the South and in our denomination, baptism is not a unique thing for us, right? It just feels it's something that you know you should do when you should do it. I want you to challenge you though. Talk, talk to a kid about why they should be baptized and see how well you know baptism. So baptism though, but even for them, this was not a unique thing for them. This ritual of baptism is actually has its roots in Jewish practice and Jewish ritual. This is what's called the mikvah. The mikvah would have been a Jewish cleansing ritual and they used it for a number of different things. And the mikvah was actually where the baptism happened. Then they started calling that the mikvah. But in this pool or a dugout cistern, it had to be fresh water, living water. If the water would have been, you took it from a, a river or a lake and you put it in a cistern before you put it into the mikvah, it didn't count. It had to be living fresh water. And so sometimes they would use living bodies of water like the Jordan River, but most often it was this. These were pools they would use for some sort of cleansing ritual. And we know about them from the Old Testament. There are a number of, of ways they were used. Primarily, uh, first would have been the priest used it. There was a mikvah for them before their ordination to become a priest. They would have been cleansed in this ritual of mikvah. 
A bride would have to have a mikvah, her own baptism, her cleansing, before her marriage, before any sacred act or transformation, the mikvah would have to happen. But the biggest way it was used in this day, at this point when Jesus is on the scene at the age of 30, is that the Jews would use this as a way to convert Gentiles, non-Jews, that they would convert Gentiles into Judaism. So they would come forward and say, I want to renounce all of my pagan ways, all of my Gentile ways. And they would enter the waters of the mikvah. And the rabbis say they would enter the waters of the mikvah and leave behind their pagan ways. The language they would use is that they would symbolically die to their old life and come up out of the water as a newborn child. They would be given new birth now as a Jew. What's happening here at the Jordan River is this kind of conversion baptism. It's those who want to renounce their old way of life, confess something, renounce their old way of life, leave the pagan way in the water, and then come out as a brand new creature in new life. But John the baptizer is flipping that around. So now he's saying, by means of confession and repentance, do you want to renounce your old way of living to now begun, begin to prepare your heart for the Messiah? This is what John is doing. And that's important for us because of verse 7. Verse 7, but when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. So it's the first time in the New Testament we're introduced with, uh, the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So let me just be clear about who they are. In this 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, with no prophet speaking, the Jews had to figure out what to do with all of this theology. What do they do with all that they have learned? And over the course of 400 years, things can get pretty messed up. And so they had, there were pretty, pretty much four Jewish sects of people in, at this time. Two of them make their appearance in the New Testament primarily, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees would have been people who were probably rabbis, and they were rabbis who did not believe the temple was necessary for worship. And so their belief as the rabbis was they believed that, yes, the written law was law. That mattered. But also there was oral law and oral tradition that had been passed down for thousands of years. And that also carried the same weight as written law. And so the Pharisees were considered a little bit more liberal when it came to Judaism. They didn't need a temple. They kind of went away from sacrifices and started focusing on moral law, both written and orally passed down. This is who the Pharisees were. They were middle-class men uh, from the communities in which they were leading as rabbis, distinguished by the fact that they were religious. The predominant characteristic of the Pharisee would have been their religion. They accepted the oral law as true law. And then you've got the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were elite. They were the party of the high priests and the wealthy aristocratic, aristocratic families in this area. They, um, they did not believe that oral law mattered. They only believed in the written law. Anything outside of written law was heresy. So as far as traditions and all that sort of thing, they held tightly to the written law of the first five books of the Old Testament. That's all that mattered. Anything outside of that doesn't matter. So they did not believe worship could happen anywhere but the temple. So they still held the sacrifices. They still held to all of that kind of stuff without the moral law tradition that came afterwards. But they did not believe because they just held to that, they held to this more conservative view of Old Testament scripture that there's no such thing as afterlife and no such thing as resurrection. There's no spiritual dimension. This is what it is. 
And it's religion that has to happen in the temple. And so for a Sadducee, a mikvah could have only happened inside the temple gates. But for the Pharisees, it could have happened anywhere. And where the Pharisees were, were uh, religious, the Sadducees were political. And in this period of silence between Malachi and Matthew, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along at all. I mean, at all. But then Jesus came along and they finally agreed on something. The Pharisees felt like, well, the Sadducees might be wrong, but this Jesus is more wrong. And the Sadducees felt like the Pharisees were wrong, but this Jesus was more wrong. And so they united around trying to condemn this Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. And so these Sadducees come dressed in all of their highfalutin priestly garb, come down to the Jordan River. The Pharisees in their rabbinical priestly garb come down to the Jordan River and they see camel skin wearing, fajita smelling John. (laughs) And they see what's happening here. But what I love about people from the wilderness like John, camel skin wearing, locust eating, fajita smelling people, they're gonna speak their mind and they speak it. He's got no social awareness whatsoever. And so he sees them coming and he says to them, you brood of vipers. Like I start off church services, with, hey, we're glad you're here today. Just imagine if next week, you brood of vipers. So he says, you brood of vipers. And so what he's saying, the word brood is family. You family of serpents, you family of snakes. For any good Jewish scholar, a snake takes you directly back to the garden. And what he's saying is, hey, you ancestors of the serpent in the garden. You brood of vipers. Who warned you? Who told you about this wrath that was to come? Well, vipers are interesting here in this area because whenever a farmer would want to start his land over and he'd start kind of a brush fire, the vipers would be hidden underneath the brush. And when the fire started, they would flee. And the old adage was they're fleeing from the wrath of the farmer. They were fleeing. But it's also related back to Old Testament prophecy about this Messiah who were to come. And when he would come, he'd be coming with the wrath of God with him. And so John the Baptist would say, I see you, you brood of vipers, you family of serpents. Who told you? Who told you there was a wrath coming? And why are you fleeing? What are you running to? Now, some scholars say these Sadducees and Pharisees are coming to be baptized, but most, most overwhelmingly say they're not coming to be baptized. They're coming to check this thing out because the Sadducees don't think mikvah should be happening outside of the temple, and the Pharisees don't think anyone outside the Pharisees should be instituting mikvah. So they come down to figure out what's happening. Word had gotten out about them. So then John continues. I want you to be clear on this. As John speaks from here on out, he's speaking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to the political religious elite and the rabbinical teachers of the day. This is who he's speaking to. And he calls them a brood of vipers, but then verse eight, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Listen, if you're coming here to be baptized by me, that's fine, but you need to understand. If that happens, you need to bear fruit that aligns with this repentance. What he's saying is, you gotta prove that you're repentant. This isn't some ritualistic thing that you guys like to do. This is for repentance. And you gotta bear fruit in keeping with it. Verse nine, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. One of the great um, foundational truths for a Pharisee and a Sadducee was that they were Jewish. What they staked their claim on was that they came from Abraham. And John is saying, listen, this baptism, this repentance, you're gonna have to have some fruit that proves it. 
And you can't lean on anymore your heritage, your upbringing, your past, that your daddy was a preacher and your grandmama was a deaconess. You can't, you can't, you can't put your life on that. You can come, but if you're gonna get baptized by me, you gotta have fruit that keeps with repentance and you gotta let go of this. You gotta let go of what your faith is in your heritage, in your family or in your position. It doesn't, it doesn't fly around here. It says, I tell you, God can make stones raise up and call them sons of Abraham. So don't think you're better than anybody else. And he continues, verse 10. And even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so now John is saying, and listen, you don't have the fruit, so get ready. You're about to get cut down. Like Even now, the kingdom of God is near and the ax is laid to the root of your tree. I don't care where you've come from. don't care what your background is. Camel wearing, locust eating, fajita smelling, John the Baptist preaching to the religious elite. And then he uses this word of fire. You'll be thrown into the fire. And he continues that thought in verse 11. I baptize you. Who's the you? Well, he's speaking to the Sadducees and Pharisees. If I'm going to do this, if I baptize you, I do this with water. It's just water for repentance, for a change of mind and a change of action. And I can do that, but you got to listen, he says. There's one coming after me who's mightier, stronger than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you, Pharisees, Sadducees, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here's what John is saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Listen, we can go through the thing if you want to, right? Like, I can dunk you in the water. We can say the word. You can come on out. But you've got to understand, when I'm done with that, there is a man here who will baptize you. The Greek word means immerse, who will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and baptize you with fire. And that's not a, that's not a thing you look forward to. This is the Old Testament idea of fire, of a consuming, overwhelming, unquenching kind of wrathful fire. So what John is saying to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, listen, if you wanna base your life and base your faith on your upbringing and your heritage and how good your mama was and how good a preacher your daddy was, it doesn't matter here. And we can go through all the ritual if you want to, but it's going to get worse for you because this Messiah, the one who comes after me, he's stronger than me. All I've got is water. He's got the Holy Spirit and fire. So test it if you want. And then he continues. He's not done. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. If you were to harvest grain or wheat, you would take a winnowing fork, kind of a big pitch fork. You would stick it in piles of wheat and you would wave it in the air. Pieces would fall off and pieces would stay on. The chaff, which was unneeded, would be burned by fire. And the wheat then would be used. It would be profitable. What John is saying, he's taking again an Old Testament idea that this Messiah will separate the wheat from the chaff. And if we're not clear... The Sadducees and the Pharisees, in John's mind, are the chaff. When this Messiah comes, he's going to make a distinction, a separation. Then verse 13, I love this. Then it just so happened that Jesus came walking down. So John's making this great speech, this great uh, sermon of repentance to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then he looks up and wouldn't you know it? Here comes that guy he was talking about. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So just quickly, this isn't coincidence or happenstance. Jesus came for this reason. He came down to John to be baptized by him. 
And John is something like Jesus' second cousin. John's mother, Elizabeth, was, mother, it was Jesus' mother's Mary's cousin. And so all sorts of things happen. But this is what's happening. He knows John the Baptist. He's coming down to the river to be baptized. Then verse 14. But John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? And Jesus' response isn't, you know, you're right. What are we, what are we doing? His response is, yeah, but let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. He makes a good point. Why am I going to baptize you? You don't need this. And Jesus says, yeah, but I need you to do this because it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So again, this word fulfill means to fully fill. It means to overflow or to complete. So Jesus, yeah, but it's fitting for us to complete, to fully fill, to the brim overflow righteousness. And righteousness is a very churchy word, but righteousness biblically means right living based on God's rule. That's what righteousness is. It's the criteria. It's what God has demanded of us, righteousness, right living based on God's rule, not right living based on what the world says, right living based on what thus says the word of God. That's what righteousness is. So Jesus says, okay, I get it, John, but... I need you to do this because it's fitting for us to fully fill, to complete righteousness. So then we're left with a few questions. Was this needed to fulfill Jesus' righteousness, his right living? If it's a baptism in which people are confessing sins, does that mean then that Jesus had sins he needed to confess through baptism? If he's baptizing with water for repentance, does that mean that Jesus had things he needed to repent of? And overwhelmingly, the answer is no. No. This was not to fulfill Jesus' righteousness. This was not because Jesus had sins to confess of before we started in ministry. This is not about him repenting. Jesus has no sin to confess, no reason to repent. And yet, he says, all righteousness, all right living, is fulfilled by my baptism. So here's what's going to help us. When the people would come from all over, from the wilderness, from Jerusalem and Judea and every side of the Jordan, they would come down to be baptized by John. They would enter the Jordan River full of the dirt of their sin. And through their confession, the symbolic act now, they would be immersed in the water And as they're immersed, what was the filthiness of their sin would come off of them and now float, like you do in your bathtub, and now float in the murky waters of the Jordan River. The picture of baptism is that as you're lowered, their sin was coming off of them. And he would raise them up in language of the mikvah to new birth, to new life. And so they would enter the water filthy from their sin and they would walk out of the water cleansed and pure and righteous from their confession and repentance. Does that make sense? And so like the bathtub for your children, what's left in the river is the filth. It's the filth of everybody else. And these people, remember John is preaching in the wilderness. So the message he's proclaiming is to more wilderness people. And who lives in the wilderness? People who were kicked out of the city, that's who lives in the wilderness. Murderers and adulterers, 
Thieves and robbers, the lepers, the broken, they're all in the wilderness. And he's proclaiming this message. And who's coming first? It's them. So when they are dunked in the water, what's floating in the Jordan River is the sins of murder and adultery and gossip and hatefulness. It's all floating in the water. They went in dirty and came out clean. And then Jesus enters. Clean. And as he is dipped in the Jordan, the sins of the people now are absorbed onto his clean garments. He's fulfilling all righteousness. While the people walk in dirty and come out clean, Jesus walks in clean and comes out dirty, bearing our sin. Rather than leaving sin behind in the Jordan, he absorbs what's left there, the sins of the people, all sins. Murder, gossip, adultery, all flavors, all degrees of sin absorbed by Jesus in this moment. It's what scholars call the great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness, for his purity and his holiness. And this is happening at the Jordan River. So what righteousness is fulfilled? Yours and mine is fulfilled at the Jordan River. It's fitting that all righteous to fulfill all righteousness. And the stark contrast John is making is it's not righteousness based on your heritage and your daddy's line and your mama's holiness. It's not based on the fact that you were born in the South and raised in Georgia and haven't missed a Sunday in 12 years. It's not based on that. It's not based on your good works and how faithful you are with your devotions and how, how well you pray. It's not based on the fact that you're a deacon or an elder or a small group leader or even a pastor. It's not based on it. It's based on the fact that Jesus went in clean and came out dirty. It fulfills all righteousness. So let's be clear. A man who had no reason to repent, had no sin to confess, confessed your sin and my sin, repented of your sin and of my sin. This is the gospel. It's the great exchange. God demands righteousness, but you and I cannot be righteous because even our confession falls short, doesn't it? Do you confess everything? Have you confessed everything? Do you, have you repented of everything? Sins of commission, sins of omission, have you? Because if you're like me, my confession gets me about 90% of the way there. Then there are just some things, man, that I don't want to confess in my own heart. I don't want to tell other people. There are just some things. And even my repentance, I've turned from a lot of things, but there are still those things that just have their hook in me. And so I am not capable of fully filling righteousness, fully filling confession or repentance, but thank God that Jesus did for me. But I can't. And here's the twisted, jacked up truth about humanity. That even now, when I do righteous things, I do them with an unrighteous heart. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm doing righteous things. And there are moments that I do righteous things that feel really righteous until I recognize I'm doing righteous things to earn the praise of other people. And that is unrighteous. It's like I can't seem to get righteous enough. And God is like, yep. That's what I've been trying to tell you. You can't do it. You can't earn it. And so thank God for this moment in the Jordan when Jesus 
fully confessed and fully repented, a man who needed no confession, needed no repentance, did it for us. We can't but thank God that Jesus did. So what's the response? Like, what's the response in this moment? How do people handle it? Well, I don't know how people handle it, but here's how the heavens handled it. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, went in clean, came up dirty, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So one of the ways the mikvah was used was to ordain a priest, a high priest, and he would be washed in the mikvah, and then he would be anointed. This word to rest on him means that it rested on his head. He is now anointed by the Holy Spirit. So, so many layers happening, but now he is qualified to be the high priest. But it's even better than that. The Holy Spirit descends and rests on him. In verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know what's happening right here? It's the Trinity. Do you see it? Jesus, the Son being baptized, God, the Son being baptized, God, the Holy Spirit descending, and God, the Father speaking. This is the Holy Spirit celebrating this moment. The author Tim Keller says, this is the dance of God. So this moment at the Jordan, what's happening? God is dancing over his Son. And of all the moments that this could have happened, think about it, all the moments this could have happened, like the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. Some of you would say, this is my son. This is mine. Where Jesus heals the leper, where he gives the blind man back his sight, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. That, I, that seems like a moment where God would say, yeah, that's my boy, and I'm well pleased. But not then, here. At this moment, when Jesus descends into the filth of our sin in his cleanliness and his holiness and comes out bearing our sin, that is when the Trinity says, let's dance. It's happening. This is the moment. And they celebrate and they dance together. What's awesome is that in the rest of the New Testament, we get a man who was a Pharisee who was miraculously saved by this very gospel of Jesus. And he wrote a lot of the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says this, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. It's as if Paul knew about this. And I wonder if he was there. That when Paul wants to talk about the gospel, what he says is God made a man who knew no sin. And then he made him sin. He dipped him in our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. It's even more powerful when you read it all in context. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. As a Pharisee, they saw Jesus as just some troublemaker. I regarded him according to the flesh, but no longer. Even though we once did that, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What's that? Oh, that's mikvah language. If anyone's in Christ, he is given new birth. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This is how he did it, and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was bringing the world back together, reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, praise God, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are now ambassadors for Christ. A Pharisee, Paul, is now an ambassador for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Because he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If that wasn't good enough, it gets even better. Because then in Philippians 3, Paul's going to tell us, what do you do with this, right? Like, what do you do with this kind of information? What does this change? How do we behave? What do we do? Well, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. Who is he speaking of? Oh, he's speaking of Pharisees and Sadducees. He's speaking of those who hold to a false gospel and he calls them mutilators of the flesh because the issue at hand is circumcision. Paul would later say that he wishes they would emasculate themselves. What Paul says, I wish the knife would slip. Beware of them. Beware of false doctrine. Beware of false gospel. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. As followers of Jesus, we have no confidence in our flesh. None. You can't do it. You can't repent good enough. You can't even speak English good enough. You can't repent well enough. You can't confess well enough. You can't do it. Even your righteousness is filthy. We just can't do it. Like we can't get out of our own way. Therefore, we should have no confidence in our flesh and what we're doing. Though I myself, Paul says, well, I have reason for confidence in my flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's of the law. I'm of the people of Israel, of the very tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. And as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever I thought I was, it's all loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. I've lost my reputation. I've lost my family. I've lost my upbringing. I've lost my tradition. I've lost all of it, but it's all rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. But then he says this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not because of my law keeping, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the Pharisee Paul says, no, 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 I get it now. At the Jordan, he fulfilled all righteousness for me. It's not about my law keeping. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. What do we do? Well, we avoid false doctrine. And secondly, we work hard to make it our own. We press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that even I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what's in the Jordan. I forget what lies behind me. And I strain forward to what's ahead, the new creation walking in new life. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Listen, church, if you call yourself a mature believer, this, this is how you should think. 
you have no confidence in your flesh. But the sad truth is, the more we walk, or the more we walk in this relationship with Jesus, the more we start to think we've done something. And the more we look down on other generations for not doing it the way that we're doing it. Do you understand what you're doing? You're putting confidence in your flesh. Because you think you're holier because of the music that you sing and you listen to. You think you're holier because of your version of the Bible. You think you're holier because you've been in church longer. And Paul is saying, listen, if you are mature, the very thing that should never leave your mind is that you should have no confidence in the flesh. It's only by the finished work and the righteousness of Jesus. And if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And what have we attained? Oh, well, we've attained the righteousness of Jesus. That's what we've attained. So we hold true to it. It's an old pastor and a theologian, J.C. Ryle, and he has this quote. It's long, but I'm gonna read it to us because I think it's just powerful and beautiful. There's a rich mine of comfort in these words. For all Christ-believing members, in themselves and in their own doings, they see nothing to please God. They are daily sensible of weakness, shortcoming, and imperfection in all their ways. But let them recollect that the Father regards them as members of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He sees no spot in them. He beholds them as in Christ, clothed in his righteousness and invested with his merit. They are accepted in the beloved And when the holy eye of God looks at them, he is well pleased. Follower of Jesus, when the holy, blameless God looks at you, he sees his son's righteousness and he says, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Father, we sing a song that says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Does it mean that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness? It means that you and I can have right standing before God. That's what it means. It means that all of the filth you've walked in has been absorbed by Jesus Christ and has been nailed to the cross. It means you can forget what lies behind and press forward to what is ahead. So I think there's two groups of people when we hear things like this. First are the proud. We're the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And sadly, it's often those of us who have been in church longer than other people. So what you need to hear this morning is that you have no reason for confidence in your flesh. This has nothing to do with your effort. Nothing. And that day that you stand before the Lord and he looks at you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know what that means, right? He's not praising you for what you've done. He's praising you for what Jesus has done and on your behalf. So if you're here today and you're proud in your pseudo-righteousness, may this message, may this declaration be clear to you. It's always been about the finished work of Jesus. I think there's some of us in the room today who we're not proud, we're anxious because we know our own hearts. And over the past few weeks, I've had a number of conversations of people asking me about, can you lose your salvation? Here's what I believe the Bible teaches. No. Because your salvation was never resting in your behavior anyway. It's always been resting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. 
And so you say, yeah, but what if I, something I f- forget to confess? What if I don't repent well enough? Well, here's the deal. You never have. And you never will. But thank God that Jesus did. And all your sin, past, present, and future, has been absorbed by Jesus and nailed to the cross for you. So you can rest in it. When God looks down at you, prone to anger, prone to alcohol addiction, prone to pornography, you adulterer, he's well pleased with you. Because Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf. You hear me? He's pleased. You're his son or his daughter. He's pleased. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Not that there's anything that we could have done. So maybe you're here today and the thing that you wrestle with is that all your efforts to achieve and earn something from God have left you feeling weary and heavy burdened. Thankfully, Jesus has a remedy for that. He says, come to me. So maybe what you're feeling is what the Sadducees and Pharisees were feeling. And over time, it turned into bitterness and vengeance, and it turned into criticism. And you become hypercritical of yourself and of other people. The good news of the gospel is that you would have never made it on your own anyway. So stop trying and just rest in the finished work of Jesus. Believe that he is who he says that he is. By grace, through faith, you are saved. And you can today. You can give your heart to him in faith that he's finished the work for you. I think there's some of us today, though, where the issue for us is we become pharisaical about other people. Well, when Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, he fulfilled all righteousness for your ex-wife, for your ex-husband and for your son and your daughter and your teacher and your coach and for that politician. All means all. That all that needs to happen is a dependence upon the finished work of Jesus and they too will be saved. I don't know what sins you think other people have that you don't have, but Jesus absorbed all of them to fulfill the righteousness, all of it. So he's been given to us now the ministry of reconciliation, drawing people to this very truth. God, we love you. I cannot believe that you love me. That you don't just accept me half-heartedly or begrudgingly, God, but that you accept me with your whole heart. Because when you see me, you don't see the filth that I see. You see the righteousness of your son. So God, may that spur us forward today. May it encourage us. May it quiet us. May it comfort us. May it give us power to walk the days that are ahead. But what I left in the Jordan, you hung on the cross. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.